Well, uh, session seven of our marriage equipping class, that's where we'll be this morning, namely embracing our role in marriage. Let me uh, lead us in prayer. Let's go to the Lord. Well, Father, we do thank you that you have not left us in marriage to figure this out on our own. You've not left us to our own wisdom or to the wisdom of this world, but you have spoken clearly about why you've left us on this earth, about who we represent and who we speak for, about whose life we are to follow, whose words we are to obey, whose pattern we are to emulate, and all the more in our marriages as husbands and as wives. And so we do pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. We do pray that you would give us zeal for the gospel and delight and living out uh, just from gospel promises in our care for one another, in our service to one another, and especially in our homes. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If you think about it, whether it's in your workplace or on a sports team, if we don't understand our role on that team or on that group of people, with that group of people, then we're gonna wander pretty aimlessly in our work. We're gonna think and feel and act in ways that aren't going to be helpful or constructive. I mean, you just think about it. if in the workplace you bear the title, okay, vice president of marketing, but you have no idea what that really means or what that really involves or what's involved in marketing. And you could see how that could go wrong pretty quickly. Or if you're on a basketball team and you bear the title point guard, but you're not real sure what it means to be a point guard or what's being asked of you as a point guard or what sort of the, the plan is for the team and how you fit into it as a point guard. I mean, you can see how confusing, not just for you, but for the whole team, that can become. And I think the same can be said in marriage. I think it really helps to understand what the Lord has assigned to us in marriage. And in many ways, that starts not just with understanding marriage, but understanding what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be someone who follows Jesus, what it means to be someone who God's given the whole counsel of God to you with so many promises and so many encouragements and so many instructions and so many directions. And that that whole counsel of God is meant to inform the way we relate to one another in marriage. The way husbands live as husbands, the way wives live as wives. And so when we're talking about roles this morning, I'm not talking about who takes out the trash or who does the dishes or who leads the family devotional on Thursday night, or who, you know, those little kinds of tasks. I think we'll talk some about, okay, there's a way to talk that through and to make decisions, and, but when we talk about our role, that's not really what we're gonna talk about. I'm talking about how we understand what we're fundamentally supposed to be doing as a husband and wife. What God has really asked of each of us what job he's given to us, what's our basic identity, what's our basic mission as Christians who are married. So turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where we'll focus this morning a lot on verses 14 through 21, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21. No, this isn't a passage we usually think about marriage when we're reading it. We should, 
because it has wonderful direct connections to how we think about our role in marriage. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So when you really think about it, Paul's writing to a church that had all kinds of conflict in the relationships there. I mean, there are members of the church dragging other members of the church to court. We know from 1 Corinthians. There's a man who had his father's wife in sexual immorality. They were dividing over their favorite leaders and apostles. They were dividing over spiritual gifts. They're dividing over just about anything you could get your hands on. So it's important here what Paul is saying that you are, now, you are a minister of reconciliation. You're someone who is to no longer regard others according to the flesh, to not count their trespasses against them. And I can tell you this, if we really obey that as husbands and wives in marriages, there would be no Christians getting divorces, ever. Because the only way you get there is by deciding you're going to start counting your trespasses against each other. You're going to start regarding one another according to the flesh. Not only would there not be sort of divorces as the end result, but there would also not be just conflict that went on endlessly. Bitterness and resentment. You think about how much bitterness and resentment in marriage, it just comes down to regarding one another according to the flesh and counting each other's trespasses against us rather than doing the work of reconciliation, carrying out the ministry of reconciliation. That's one reason why this is so important, such an important passage for us. And so it just starts with this idea of, okay, who are we? And who we are, according to this passage, is ambassadors for Christ. So I want us to do in this section A is just kind of give an overview of the idea, an overview of the passage. And we'll go back through and walk through a kind of a verse at a time. So understanding ourselves to be ambassadors for Christ, that's our job title. That's who God calls us to be. That now that we're in Christ, according to the Paul, we no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ Jesus as Lord. That we're new creations in Christ, redeemed by the grace of God and no longer representing ourselves. And think about the last time, if you're married, that in a conversation, you are consciously aware of the fact that everything you're going to say would speak for Jesus. 
that everything you're about to communicate, you weren't speaking for yourself merely, but for God. That we're citizens from another country, a heavenly country, representing a king, Jesus, and a kingdom, his kingdom, in a foreign land, this world. Even just think about that identity, that we're, we're, we're citizens of a whole nother place, living as foreigners in this world, and he's called us to be ambassadors. You just even think about that image of being an ambassador, like you're, you're living in another country that isn't your own, representing the interests of that country that sent you. And my concern is, especially for myself, is that I don't think I've really come to grasp that fully in, at home. Like if we're about to board a plane to head to Southeast Asia to do mission work, or if we're about to go across town to do evangelistic outreach, now we tend to think about ourselves as ambassadors for Christ. But in our kitchens, around our breakfast table, sitting in our living room, just on the family vacation, that's when we tend to forget that we're not off the clock, that we don't get to sort of punch out, that from God's point of view, we're every bit an ambassador in that moment as we are if we're in Burma teaching the Bible. So here's a couple questions for us to consider. Just how many of us see ourselves as ambassadors for Christ to our spouse? How many of you would see that as part of the identity that God has given you? An ambassador for Christ to your spouse. How many of us believe our most important function in the life of our spouse is to help them see and enjoy and worship and obey Jesus Christ? That that's our most important job, is to help our spouse see Christ, help them enjoy Christ, help them worship Christ. So when we think about our role in marriage, the parts that we play in marriage, I find that helping our spouse live reconciled to God isn't at the top of the list. And that's part of why these kinds of passages are so important to realize, okay, when we walk in our door at home, we don't get an exemption from the role. We don't get to walk in now and just represent ourselves, represent our interests. But I would say the importance of the role magnifies because that's where it starts, right? And just think again about that image as an ambassador. There's sort of two significant functions that ambassadors play in their service. One is they live in a foreign land representing the interests of their king and their country in that land. So if you're an ambassador from the United States to Bulgaria then yeah, you're, you're going to be living in Bulgaria as an American citizen, representing the interests of the people of the United States in Bulgaria, representing your king, the president, and your kingdom, that country there. That's one important function. That's a kind of evangelistic function, where you're representing the interests of your king to people who don't belong to your king. But then there's a second function that ambassadors serve, and that is you also look after the interests of your fellow citizens from your homeland who are also living in that foreign country, right? There's an embassy that is basically your country's soil in that land. And that's the place where other citizens of the United States get to go 
and seek refuge and seek help and be cared for. So ambassadors also serve that role. You represent the interests of your king and your kingdom to your fellow citizens who are also living in that foreign land. And that's the piece I want us to think about some this morning is how we serve and how we fill that role in the lives of our mate, just in the day-to-day tasks of life that were ministers of reconciliation among the citizens of our homeland, which means our fellow believers, and that that one, I would even argue, comes first. It's a sort of priority. That though it really is important that we represent Christ well to the watching world, represent Christ well to those who aren't in Christ, I think it starts with representing Christ well to one another. Being a minister of reconciliation in the church, a minister of reconciliation in our marriages. Listen to John 13, 35, where Jesus says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In other words, our love for one another is what gives birth to and validates our message to the world. Or John 17, 23, where Jesus is praying to the Father that we would be united. And he says, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And that they would look at the unity of the church and by God's grace believe that the Father really did send the Son. The glory which you've given me, I've given them. That they may be one, just as we are one. So there's a kind of unity of the church that's distinctive. How much more the unity of marriage should represent this? A husband and wife, both followers of Jesus, who have covenanted together before God until death to love one another. And here's Jesus saying, if the church is to be one, how much more also a husband and wife? I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Just to think that Jesus came and lived and died and rose so that we would be reconciled to God the Father and reconciled to one another. Like Jesus died to accomplish that. He rose to accomplish that. And now he's praying, Lord, help, Father, help them live out that reconciliation. Live out that unity that I have purchased for them. Live out that oneness that I have made for them through the Spirit. And so he's left us to continue to labor as an ambassadors of Christ with one another so that the world would see the power of God on display. And the worse marriage gets out there, the more distinctive marriage becomes in here. That's part of what can be motivating for us. It's easy to sort of look at what is being done to marriage out in the world and to get discouraged and to get down and to think, oh, this is hopeless, as opposed to, well, actually, no, this is an opportunity. How distinctive can Christian marriage truly look now? Which is why it's so important for us to take on this role, this image as, okay, ambassador for Christ, minister of reconciliation in our own homes and families. In other words, we come as an ambassador, not as kings and queens. That's sometimes how we'll approach marriage, to exercise rule, to exercise dominion. Not as saviors 
who come to fix and transform our spouses into what we think would be best. Not as lawyers. That's not the identity he gives us, to, to come and argue. To argue our spouses even into Christian obedience. Not as life coaches, not as parents to each other, not as business partners. Because very quickly we can lose sight of the spiritual significance of what we're called to, to be ambassadors for Christ, and just get bogged down in the worries of this life. How are we going to pay for stuff? How are we going to get the kids educated? How are we going to pay for health care? How are we going to take care of these cars and this house? And again, they're not all bad things. It's just in the day-to-day, what's for dinner? We lose track of who we represent of what our role fundamentally is at dinner and around the dinner table. As ambassadors for Christ, we represent Christ, reflect Christ, speak for Christ, serve the true good of our spouses for the glory of God. So just another question to consider. When your spouse hurts you, do you move toward them in love to help them understand the love of God for them in Christ and the depth of his grace in Christ. Just to think about that a minute. When our spouse hurts us, do we move toward to help them understand the love of Christ for them? When they're struggling with sin, temptation, selfishness, is that a moment where we think, okay, this is where the Lord's called me to, to intercede in prayer? to speak truth and love, to express the compassion of Christ and the gospel, to help them see what God would have them see? Or do we tend to withdraw, get sulky, get angry, get cold, get bitter? If we have a prayer, it's, Lord, snap them out of this. Lord, fix them. Lord, make them stop. So it is interesting how we often forget in those kinds of moments, when there's wrongdoing, when there's temptation, when there's struggle, when there's hurt, when there's pain, that our role as ambassadors for Christ is especially important in that moment. So we just look at the ministry of Paul who wrote this. Like he's going to go to Lystra in Acts 14, and they're going to heal a guy there. And so all the people are going to come out and think, oh, the gods have come here to dwell among us. So they think Barnabas is Zeus and Paul is Hermes, since Paul's the speaker. Remember, they bring out a sacrifice to them and start offering it up. And so you think, oh, that's a pretty good deal. You've got a whole city that's ready to worship you, a whole city that's ready to give you whatever you want. And instead, Paul and Barnabas, they realize what's happening, and they run to the crowd and they tear their clothing as in an act of humiliation. And then they plead with these people, to not just stop offering the sacrifice, but say, we've called you to repent and turn from this worthless idol worship. And so what they do next is they stone him to death. I mean, that's, you talk about from to- going high to low in about 15 minutes. To go from being worshipped to being stoned, just like that. But then Paul gets up, and they go to the next city, and they keep ministering. Or in Philippi, remember that they're, he's going to cast out 
a demon, the demon from a demon-possessed girl just because she keeps screaming that everybody should listen to them because they're servants of the Most High. And said after a couple of days of this, he got so irritated. It's one of the few moments we see him cast out a demon because of irritation. And then when the owners of this girl realize, okay, their, their opportunity for money-making is gone, they grab them, falsely accuse them, beat them, and have them thrown in jail. And it's midnight, and... Paul and Silas are going to be in there in the jail singing hymns. Just to think about that. You've just come to a city. So you're there for days, ministering the gospel, casting out a demon from a slave girl. You get wrongly accused, beaten, thrown in jail. And at midnight, you're singing hymns. And then there's an earthquake. And all the doors of the cells fly open. And everyone's free to go. So it seems. And the jailer, Philippian jailer, wakes up and he realizes what's happened, sees all the doors open, and he assumes everybody's gone. Remember, he takes out his sword and he's about to kill himself. And somehow the Apostle Paul knew what he was about to do, but called out, Don't hurt yourself. We're all here. Not just Paul and Silas, but everyone. I don't know how he got everybody to stay, but they're all there. And he runs in and hits his knees. And, and this is where the Philippian jailer is going to come to faith in Christ, his whole family is going to come to faith in Christ. But you see in the Apostle Paul, this is his attitude about the ministry of reconciliation. This is his attitude about representing Christ. It's not about being in or out of jail. It's not about being beaten or not beaten. It's not about looking good, not being humiliated, being treated well. It's about at all times, I'm representing Christ to the souls of people who need Christ. And if that's how Paul's, the posture he's willing to take with a Philippian jailer, how much more us with our spouses? To have that kind of attitude, that no matter what we face, no matter what we're walking through, no matter how hard life might be, okay, this is my role. This is what God has called me and left me to do. And so you're here as a husband or you're here as a wife, and it's realizing the Lord has redeemed you to be a certain kind of husband and a certain kind of wife, distinctive from the world. And so we don't get to reinvent our job description, in other words. We don't get to rewrite it. So I could tell our kids, hey, y'all need to go upstairs and clean up all your rooms because they look like a tornado hit. And you need to straighten up and give them a set of instructions and then come back and we'll talk after that. And they come back downstairs and I say, so how'd it go? The cleaner said, well, we didn't get around to that, but I did draw you this awesome picture. And they hand it to me. It's a great picture. And okay, that, this is nice, and I appreciate it, but this isn't what I ask you to do. Here's what I ask you to do. And I wonder if there's a danger that that's how we'll show up in heaven. The Lord's like, okay, here's what I called you to be and to do, to be my ambassador on earth, to be a minister of reconciliation. And I go, well, but Lord, I drew you a really nice picture. Because here's what I, I really think you wanted. And sometimes we'll live life that way. And we have to pray, Lord, help me get the point of what you've really left me here to do, who you've called me to be in relationship to my wife, so that when I speak and think and feel and act and live and in my attitudes and in everything, I'm fulfilling that role. So how do we do it? That's this next section. Any questions before we get to section B here?
or comments or reflections? Well, how do we do it? Well, in a phrase, it's the love of Christ. It's getting really enamored with Christ. That's where it starts. Getting really attentive to his word, wanting to please him above everything. Listen to John 21. This is when Jesus has been resurrected. Jesus shows up with Peter, who has denied him three times. And Jesus reconciles to Peter and reconciles Peter to himself. And then in John 21, 18, Jesus says to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, he said, follow me. So Peter, or Jesus is talking to Peter, saying, hey, when you were younger, you had it pretty easy. You got to go where you wanted to go. Not anymore. Now you're going to be bound and taken where you don't wish to go. And then John comments, and by this, he was signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. That Peter would do a lot of suffering and would endure a lot of affliction and then would die very painfully for Christ. You remember what Peter does next? Immediately, what's, what happens next? Remember, he turns around, and who does he see walking? John. So the author of this, he sees, and there's immediately a question, well, what about him? <laughs> Remember, Jesus replies, if it's my, my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. That's our instinct, right? Hey, Jesus says, you need to follow me, and it's going to hurt. It's going to be a lot of suffering. And we look and go, well, what about them? To which Jesus says, well, if it's my will that he remain and just teach Bible studies in a retirement home and then die quietly in his sleep when he's 90, what's that to you? You follow me. That's such an important foundational statement before the book of Acts. Such an important foundational statement for every Christian because it's so tempting to compare ourselves to everybody else. It's so tempting to compare what do I have to endure compared to what my spouse has to endure. Just how many times in your mind have you grumbled because of how much weight you pull around the house? Because of how much you endure compared to them. And even just the comparison among spouses. And so to hear Christ saying, hey, I told you to follow me and to pattern your life after me. Don't look at everybody else. Or you might look at another marriage and go, okay, how come they get this or they get that or they get these kinds of circumstances or this kind of family they came from or this kind of spouse and situation in marriage or these kinds of kids or this kind of job, fill in the blank. And so very quickly we have to learn, okay, I've got to get laser focused on Christ. And what does it mean to follow him? knowing that he's going to give you a very different set of circumstances than he gives everybody else, a very different marriage than he's going to give everybody else, a very different calling that he's given everybody else, and how that gets worked out day to day. And so he's given us only one thing to think about, follow me. And that's what we need often, right? 
Because we can get so distracted by a thousand other little things. Danny. The balance between that and what? Yeah, so in one way, sure, as a married couple, you're following Christ together. But then to real, it's to realize, okay, what's my contribution to that? Well, it's got to be that I'm following Christ. You've probably seen the diagram that here's Jesus, here's husband and wife. And it's tempting to just try to move closer together this way. When really, if you're both following Christ and moving toward him, you're moving closer together as you do that. And that's some of why this is important. It's just in day-to-day life, to have my eyes fixed on Jesus, shoulder-to-shoulder with my spouse, is the best way to actually be one in marriage. It's the best way to actually love, serve, draw nearer to your spouse, is both of us having our eyes fixed on Jesus. And then that becomes, and that's part of why this is important, is because that becomes sort of a daily task. How do we help each other fix our eyes on Jesus, not the stock markets? Fix our eyes on Jesus, not our savings account. Fix our eyes on Jesus, not our kids' report cards, even though we're having to deal with all those things. Groceries, clothes, chores, report cards, shuttling the kids all over the place. But as we do it, are we following Jesus as we do it? As we walk in those tasks, are we representing Christ in those tasks? Because, yeah, Peter would have had to eat food and do laundry, and Peter was married. Just life would have kept going day to day. But in that day-to-day life, the call is, yeah, follow me. And so what that does is it completely changes, I think, the attitude with which we do what we do, the prayer with which we do what we do, the, the aim and the goal. And so therefore, oneness in marriage is all in service to Christ and his glory and his kingdom, not just to making my life work the way I want it to. Um, So being controlled by the love of Christ, go back to verse 14, where he says something really important. For the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ constrains us from doing what we ought not to do. It compels us to do what we are called to do. But then we have to ask, okay, according to what controlling us? What are the things that might control you as a husband and wife rather than the love of Christ? Money. Money can control us. Love for money, fear of not having money. What else? Work, just vocation, you mean career, status and job, yeah, climbing the ladder. Yeah, that can absolutely consume us and control us rather than love of Christ. What else? Children. Children? Yeah, just getting them a certain way, getting them a certain place, just that whole world of... And again, what we're not saying is that you shouldn't have a job or raise kids or... It's just very different to be controlled by those things where that's what's controlling my affections, controlling my life. What else? Just all the different things that you might love. Yeah, rather than the love of Christ, the love of. And we'll see a couple in verses 12 and 13, like the love of human praise, the love of glory, 
the love of being respected, or the fear of losing all those things, the fear of people, the fear of failure, the fear of embarrassment. So a lot of times, it's not the love of Christ that's controlling us, but the fear of people, and that that's actually controlling our lives. Or selfish desires of the flesh, verse 15, sort of getting a hint there. Concern for our glory should not control us, but the love of Christ and his glory. And so I've said this before, you know, I don't think there's any drug more intoxicating than the praise of man in all the world, in all its thousand forms, and nothing more paralyzing than the fear of man in all the forms that that takes. Just to think, how many decisions have you made in your life to impress other people? How many decisions in your life have you made to avoid rejection or failure? Like, we will live our lives often simply to maintain a particular image. And that's the very thing that Paul's saying, by God's grace, that has to be put to death. The love of Christ, his love for us, our love for him must be the controlling influence. And Paul goes on to explain why the love of Christ controls us. Look there, one died for all, therefore all died. It's the death of Jesus Christ in our place and all its implications that that's now what should seize control of our hearts. Just that idea that, okay, I've died with Christ. The desires of my flesh no longer matter. The love of Christ puts us to death in him, then brings us to life in him. And just to think that because he surrendered his life for our salvation, totally undeserved, and that that sacrifice by the grace of God is very compelling. So that's why if we really want to grow in our love for our spouses, grow in our unity in marriage, then we need to spend time thinking about the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Thinking about, okay, his life given for me. Because Paul says, when you grasp that deeper and deeper, it's controlling. It's compelling. In other words, it's not enough to just get up in the morning and write your list of, here's my eight ways I'm going to love my spouse today. It's not necessarily bad. That just can't be the compelling force of it. Better to wake up in the morning and write the eight implications of Christ giving his life for you. Christ dying in your place for salvation. Christ giving himself up for your redemption. And now you're bought with that price. That Paul says, yeah, that's compelling. That's influential. Because there's no more motivating affection in all of human life than the love of Christ, and especially that love that he expressed toward us on Calvary. Well, how do we let that love control us? We see what he says next, by concluding something. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. In other words, we have to spend our days concluding that. One died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And so one of the reasons that Jesus died for us is so that we would live for him, to set us free from the bondage of flesh, set us free from the bondage of sin, 
set us free from wrath to come, and set us free so that we would live for him. So no longer my kingdom come, no longer my will be done, but his kingdom come, his will be done. And so again, it's just thinking through how that's meant to affect every single little detail of marriage. And this is why whatever marriage book it might be that says, okay, here's the 119 ways to love your spouse. I mean, I'm sure it could be great and creative, but in many ways it just comes down to one thing. Comprehend the love of Christ for you. Comprehend that he died for all so that you would no longer live for yourself. And then what you'll find is each and every day you'll just find ways to love people. You'll find ways to love your spouse. Because whatever those 119 ways to love your spouse last week, there'll be a whole new 119 today and 119 next week. And what we need is a heart that is controlled by the love of Christ. That's what he's getting at. And when that heart is controlled by it, it's going to change the way you talk. It's going to change the way you respond to hurt. It's going to change the way you make decisions about everything. So be controlled by the love of Christ, but then secondly, recognize no one according to the flesh. So now that we see ourselves in a new light, we also see others in a new light. Just that phrase, we recognize no one according to the flesh. What do you think that means? Share some ideas. What does it mean to recognize no one according to the flesh? What are the ways that we recognize others according to the flesh? Of what? Yeah, so it might be that we judge their performance, just how well their actions stack up to what we think they ought to be doing. What else? We might judge motives according to the flesh. I think even, even more simple than all that, we judge by appearances. We judge, I mean, because we saw Christ according to the flesh, he says, meaning we saw him in body on earth. But we don't see him any longer because he's seated at the right hand. He's in heaven. And so regarding according to the flesh, part of what he's getting at is just physical appearances. Just how much we judge people by physical appearance how much we judge them by physical performance, how much we judge them by sort of external appearances, by wealth and status and image and name. I mean, right, isn't that the entire impetus of Instagram? Is that the entire sort of impetus of so much of social media? Is appearances, perceptions, outward forms, outward shows, and so it means no longer do we regard our spouse according to their physical appearance. And how many issues would that resolve for many? We no longer regard them according to the impressiveness of their speech, the impressiveness of their oratory, their income, their dress, their, you feel, their athletic ability. All the things that this world builds itself on 
Paul says we just don't regard each other that way. And to think how much, I think, anger, frustration, bitterness is fueled in marriage by regarding each other according to the flesh. How they do chores or don't do chores. How they spend money or don't spend money. How they do the dishes or don't do the dishes. How they dress or don't dress. I mean, you fill in the blank. And Paul says we just don't recognize one another that way anymore. We recognize it, meaning we see it. We acknowledge it. It's just we don't judge each other by it. We don't regard one another that way. So do you define your spouse according to the circumstances of their lives, like the friends of Job? Do we measure or esteem our spouses based on the quality of their speech or their dress or their smell or their athletic ability or their parenting or, or the behavior of our children? We can judge our spouse that way. Do we view our spouses through their family origin, through their gender, through their physical appearance, through their skin color, or through their standing in Christ? Do we relate to our spouses based on how they can personally benefit our kingdom and glory? Do they make me look good? Or do they make me look bad? Do they make me win esteem in the eyes of others? Or do they cause me to lose esteem in the eyes of others? Just the fact that Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother. That's an astounding statement. That when we get to heaven in all the tens of thousands of angelic hosts, in all the glory, and you walk in, he's not ashamed to put his arm around you. Or on earth, that he's not ashamed for the leper to touch him. He's not ashamed for the little children to come to him and sit on his lap and grab his beard and drool on his robe. And, and so much so that even the disciples, right, were astounded. Like all these little children coming to him, and, and what were they doing? Well, they do what two- and three-year-olds do in every century. They scream and drool and grab and claw and wrestle and have fun. And, and the disciples were like, oh, oh, no, no, get them away. And what does Jesus say? No, let them be. For the kingdom belongs to such as these. And just that he's going to take the poor and the outcast and those who are rejected and not impressive to the world, and he's going to say, these are my friends. That says something about how little concerned he is with his image in the eyes of the world, with how impressive he is to them for fleshly reasons. And so this is big in marriage. We're just in the flesh, we get too concerned with how do I look in the eyes of the world? Who around me makes me look good? Who makes me not look good? And I think the sad thing is if Jesus were walking around on the earth today, we just might not be hanging out in the same circles he is. And that's because he's just simply not regarding anyone according to the flesh. Do we see our spouses by his or her sins or through the covering they wear in Jesus Christ and how God is displaying his immeasurable grace through them? Just the idea that God doesn't see you through your sins now, but covered in the righteousness of Christ. He's dealing with our sin, but again, he sees us in Christ. So we have to ask ourselves, do I see my spouse in Christ? 
Do I see them covered in the righteousness of Christ or do I just relate to them through their sins and through how that looks? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. New things have come. You're a new creature. I'm a new creature. The person we're married to is a new creation in Christ. And so are we regarding them as this new creation, relating to them as a new creation? So hopefully you see here, this isn't like a rule list of like 11 rules, but a way of seeing, a way of interpreting all of life, a way of understanding marriage with Christ in the very middle that now affects everything you think about your spouse, everything you feel toward them, everything you're going to say to them, your attitude about them. And I bet if you look at areas where there's just bitterness in there toward your mate, resentment, apathy, coldness, withdrawal, those are all going to be areas in marriage where you have not regarded them as a new creation in Christ covered in Christ, but you have regarded them according to the flesh. You have kept a record of wrongs. You have judged them and seen them through sort of how they've performed in these ways. And this is the very thing that the Apostle Paul is trying to protect us from, so that we would actually be ministers of reconciliation, that we would live united to one another. And so thirdly, embrace life as a minister of the gospel that we would be given the ministry of reconciliation as though we making an appeal through us or as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We've been given, notice, the word of reconciliation, the gospel, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And then the goal of this ministry, notice, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what we get to do together. That's what husbands and wives in Christ, that's what we're doing together is we're becoming the righteousness of God in him. And so like Jesus, we're to be peacemakers. And as with Jesus, that ministry is costly. Because many of us didn't enter into marriage realizing that the ministry of reconciliation is costly. It hurts. There's things we lose. There's things we have to give up. There's things we have to let go of. It's glorious, but it's painful. It has eternal effects, but it's exhausting. It's good. It's why we remain on earth. And so how do we embrace that identity? This is where I want us to sort of close with, looks like about six things that will help us embrace a life as a minister of the gospel in our marriages. Number one, realize your spouse needs continual help seeing, believing, and enjoying Jesus Christ. Continual help. Not once a year. Not, okay, we, our first six to 12 months of marriage were meant to be spent doing that. I'm kind of done. No, continual help seeing Christ, believing Christ, enjoying Christ. So it affects how often and carefully we pray for one another. It's one of our primary ministries as a husband or wife is prayer. To pray for the spiritual battle that your spouse is in every day. I'm convinced if we spent as much time praying as we do grumbling, it would change a lot. 
firstly about just our own lives. Sometimes I wonder if the Lord, you know, hears some of the things, the complaints I'm offering, and, and he's like, okay, I can't tell. Are you praying or complaining? Which is it? And when I'm honest, it's often just complaining. But to actually pray, when you see that struggle in your mate, when you see that sin pattern, when you see whatever it might be, to go, okay, this is, a, this is where I pray for them. It affects what we obsess and talk about as a couple, the kind of time we spend in the Word of God, talking about the person and work of Christ together, where now it means, okay, one way we help each other is by talking about the Word of God, talking about the promises of God. Just actually having time where you're sharing with each other, here's what I read today from this passage that was so edifying and encouraging. I just wanted to share it with you. Or texting a verse of Scripture that you came across that was just really convicting and humbling to you. It affects how committed we are to the body of Christ, to gathering with the saints, to being involved in ministry together. We realize, okay, one of the ways I'm going to care for my spouse is by encouraging us to be a part of the body of Christ together because we both need that. By encouraging and talking about our time in the word together because this is what is going to stir up faith in them. We may think that like a 10-hour Netflix binge like, this will be great, restful time together. And then we're shocked with within 30 minutes after that, we're in an argument. Or the next day we have apathy toward Christ or the things of God. Doesn't mean it's wrong to watch Netflix. No, great, but just be careful the doses. And be really careful thinking, I'm going to encourage my spouse to walk in the world and then expect them to bear the fruit of the Spirit. No, we have to encourage them also to walk with Christ as we walk with Christ. Encourage one, because we all need that, right? There's just Sunday mornings where, yeah, it just would be nicer to sleep in. There's going to be Sunday evening service times where it's just, you know what, there's just, I'd rather just rest. There's going to be different gatherings of the church where it's like, you know, there's just, I'd rather go see a movie. So we all have those moments where we need encouragement from other believers to persevere to do what's hard because it's good. And so just to think in marriage, we need to do that. Again, not browbeat, not force or control, but more encouraging one another, Hebrews 10. And all the more as we see the day drawing near. He says, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembly together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And he says, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. That's so important. We see the day coming where Christ is going to show up. We're going to see him face to face. And are we encouraging one another to love and good deeds, to not forsake the assembly? So that's a key part of marriage. Secondly, realize you need constant help seeing and believing and enjoying Jesus Christ. Not just them, but, but us. Psalm 141.5, where David prays, Let the righteous smite me, it is a kindness. Let him reprove me, it is oil upon my head. Let not my head refuse it. That was his prayer. What a great prayer. Let the righteous just slap me. I'll take it as a kindness. Let him reprove me. I'll take it as anointing and blessing from God. And his prayer is, let not my head refuse it. And David lived that out. He sinned big, but you'll notice by his life, anybody could correct him. 
He was one of the most reprovable individuals you'll ever see in the Bible. In terms of the sheer number of people that corrected at him different times in his life, and he accepted it. It's one of the things that distinguished him from King Saul and most other kings, was how teachable he was. And so we want that posture of heart, where when our spouse reproves us in something that, yeah, is important and that we actually accept it, that we appreciate it, that we thank the Lord for it, thank them for it. Number three, joyfully accept your spouse is a sinner. It is something how surprised we continue to be by the sinfulness of our spouses, right? Like it's a newsflash. Like it's shocking. I can't believe they talk to me that way. Or I can't believe they... And just however you fill in that blank. And you just want to go, okay, what about your understanding of the Bible and humanity makes you not able to believe that? Or about ourselves, right? And so some of it is we need to stop being so shocked that our spouse might be selfish. Or that we're selfish. Because everything about the diagnosis of the human condition that God gives us says, yeah, that's wrapped up in the flesh. This is going to be a battle till the day we get home. And so there's a joyfulness in accepting, yeah, this is part of it. This is part of what it means to be husband and wife in this fallen world. This is part of what it means to be husband and wife until we get home. Is there's going to be some rubbing and some hurting and some things that are difficult. So I love that proverb, you know, as iron sharpens iron, what? So one man sharpens another. You know, it's, yeah, it's been the banner of more men's retreats than any other verse in the history of the world. And it just sort of shows how much we misunderstand even the image that he's portraying, that as iron sharpens iron. How does iron sharpen iron? Well, you get one piece of iron this way and the other this way, and you make to where they're, they're against the grain of one another. And then you rub them against each other to create heat and friction where rough edges start getting ripped off and rough pieces start getting smoothed out. In other words, it's not a pleasant image for how iron sharpens iron. And so in some ways, that's how God sanctifies us in the church and sanctifies us in marriage. He's like, okay, I'm going to put you this way. I'm going to put him or her that way and just do that. Create heat and friction. And now you're going to see your need for me, for grace, for repentance, for forgiveness, for change. And accepting that, seeing that, valuing that, saying, okay, that's good. For some reason we thought, okay, this person that we married, that God's going to give us someone. And our version of perfect compliment is they do it the way we do it. They think the way we think. They feel the way we feel. They act the way we act. They have the exact same desire for everything that we do. The Lord thinks the exact opposite to that. That what he wants us to share is our union with Christ, our desire for his glory, and then almost everything else is up for grabs. And it's amazing that no matter how much premarital counseling you do, no matter how many worksheets you filled out about like agreeing on stuff, and this is why all the online matching stuff typically is disastrous. Because the way the world thinks about compatibility is, oh, you like Italian food? Me too. Oh, you, you like to this kind of fashion? Oh, me too. Oh, you like these kinds of movies? Me too. It's all like sameness. And that's just not biblical complementarity. Now, what we have is a shared love for Christ, a shared love and understanding of what the point of even marriage is. 
But then when it comes to decor and style and taste and flair and interest, and I mean, it's going to be all over the map. And the longer you're married, the stranger at times your spouse will seem to you in certain ways. There's all these things you'll come to appreciate and love. And you're like, yeah, I, just, I know them. I know this about them. But it doesn't mean it'll make sense why exactly they do it that way. And that's God's design because now you really have to learn how to love another person. Now you really have to learn how to be sacrificial and joyful in it. Now you have to learn how to orient your life around other and not just self. Joyfully accept the cost of trusting and following Jesus in marriage. There is going to be a cost to it. Just to what I just described, you're going to have to give stuff up. You're going to have, and the biggest cost is the cost of getting over yourself. That, for sure, is going to have to happen. We have to learn the art of getting over ourselves. Our preferences, our desires, our demands, the way we like it. And think, okay, what does it actually mean to love my spouse for the glory of Christ? To seek first his kingdom and his righteousness together. Be convinced that gospel ministry in marriage is always worthwhile. Yeah, this is a hard one. That when our spouses are struggling, just like when our kids are struggling, we tend to call these distractions from ministry. Why don't we just call that ministry too? Right? I mean, that's just an important question we have to ask ourselves, that usually we would see, okay, whatever struggles our spouses bring to the table, or our kids, or whatever it is, it's distracting us from the real work. Rather than as a minister of reconciliation, no, that is the real work. That will always be the real work. It's just easier not to deal with that stuff. It's easier to just want it easy. Get a job or two, then a house, a couple cars, a few kids, a nice vacation or two a year. Then make sure the kids are well-educated and athletically trained. Then launch them successfully into the world. Then get them married. Then get some grandkids. Then get them to live nearby. Then retire and get everything paid off so that you can spend your final years coasting home, ready to die peacefully in your sleep. Right? There it is. There's the perfect road that we're all aiming for. And then the Lord just like drops bombs on the road and like creates all these diversions off-road through rivers and streams and across mountains and in snow. And, and all of a sudden that we just find ourselves sitting in the front seat screaming at our kids for ruining whatever that great dream was or our spouse for not doing enough to contribute to that dream. And so one of the big questions that we all have to ask ourselves in marriage is whose dream are we living for? Whose vision are we serving? Did we ask God if this is what he had in mind? Or do we just assume that Better Homes and Gardens said this was it? And so I guess this is it. This is what I'm seeing on Instagram everywhere, even among Christians. This must be the road. And instead, we need to take our cues, again, from Scripture, from reading the Gospels, reading the book of Acts, reading the epistles to see what was normative Christian life to them. Love your spouse the way God loves your spouse, with the power and wisdom he supplies through his spirit and his word. At the end of the day, that really is 
the prayer, right? Lord, help me to love him or her the way you love me. Help me to serve him or her the way you serve me. Help me to forgive them the way you forgive me. I want to be humble and confess and repent and own my sin and selfishness and pride and seek forgiveness and seek to be restored. Do the ministry of reconciliation each and every day as needed, when needed. Embracing our role in marriage means embracing the fact that we are his instruments in the work of sanctification in the life of another person that God loves your spouse more than you love your spouse. And you're his instrument for their good, and vice versa. He's not our instrument to get them to do what we want. We are his instrument in their life to bring about the fruit and what he wants. And it's meant to be hard, but it's meant to be wonderful. It's meant to be weighty, but it's meant to be sweet. It's meant to be costly, but it's absolutely, totally worth it. It just get, it means getting our minds around what God is trying to do. Any questions, comments, reflections in these last few minutes? Just things that stand out to you. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a good question. So the question is, how do, how do we encourage one another without praising? And that's worth a lot of reflection. I mean, I'll give a few initial comments, and then you can, as you go out this afternoon, I think that's really worth thinking about. I think one is, it's learning to say to one another what God does say to one another, meaning God does love you. God does care for you. He is near to you. He's with you. He's for you. You are forgiven. You are delightful to him. You're an encur- and even to say you're delightful to me, you're encouraging to me. So there's words we can use there that are truthful words, but you could almost say right next to it, but you know what? You're not very impressive. Like to be able to say, you know what? I love you. And it doesn't make sense because you're not great. But I do love you. You know, the Lord is with you and near to you. He'll never forsake you, even though you're a knucklehead. And so there's even a way in which we're able to say, yeah, clearly you're flawed. And clearly you struggle in these ways, but yet the Lord's with you, for you, loves you, forgive you. I'm with you, for you, love you. And so whereas what praise tends to be is just this flattery about performance. And we look at each other and say, yeah, you're amazing. You're great. You're so tremendous. Here's all the great things you do and you don't do. And, and so we tend to focus externally. Rather than are there things that we can say and think about to express to one another that God always communicates. All the while understanding, but you're not amazing. You're not, you're not, a, you're not a performer when it comes to that. And so that's going to be one piece of it, is learning how do I encourage them in that. A second big one I think is just noticing growth, noticing change, noticing ways in which God is sanctifying them, to be able to say, hey, I, I see how the Lord is doing this in you. you know, and I see how you're being changed by him in these kinds of ways. A third thing I find to encourage is faithfulness. Not perfection, but faithfulness. 
just to be able to look at someone and say, brother, sister, I, I see how faithful you're being just to follow the Lord, how faithful you are in serving our family, how faithful you're being in serving our church. How fa-. And so that would be another piece. I think anything that gets at sort of faithfulness rather than sinlessness is, I think, another way to really encourage biblically. Um, so it would be three ways. Anything else? All right, let me pray for us. Father, we do pray that you would grow us in this ministry of reconciliation, that you would help us to see and appreciate that our spouses need help seeing Christ, that we need help seeing Christ, that this ministry of the gospel in our homes is absolutely worthwhile. And at the end of the day, we just need you to help us love one another. We need you to help us forgive as you have forgiven, serve as you have served. Seek first your kingdom and your glory above everything. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.